Good morning again. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. And our verses that we're going to look at, we won't finish it all today. Our verses 16 through 34. Acts 16, verses 16 through 34. I want to speak with you guys about the great hope that we have in Christ. Amen? Amen. The hope for the hopeless. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you united in heart and mind simply because of King Jesus. God, if we understand our Bibles correctly, we were all dead in our sins and our trespasses without God and without hope in this world. We did not love you nor care about you nor want anything to do with you. We were perfectly content living in rebellion underneath your wrath, running as hard and fast away from you as we possibly could. But those of us that are in the faith had a but God moment. And we're grateful that in your mercy and in your kindness and in your grace, you gave us what we don't deserve, which is new life in Christ pardon in Christ, justification in Christ, adoption in Christ, union with Christ, so many benefits. And so God, we thank you that we sit here in the midst of a weary, sin-cursed world. Yes, it's hard and yes, it's a struggle. And yes, there's so many things that happen that are just really difficult, but we have hope. And so, Father, this morning, I pray, God, as we look at this passage of Scripture and we look at this man, this Philippian jailer, that we remember and think not only about the hope that you've given us, but also the hope that's there for others. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts to be looking at the fields. And to see that they're white for harvest. And there's so many lost around us that are looking for hope in so many false ways. When there's only one true hope in Christ. We pray that your spirit gives us the illumination that we need today. Mind, heart, will, and emotion. That your spirit opens the word to us today. We need it so desperately. God, that you would help both the preacher and the hearer both sit underneath the authority of your word today. That we won't just be hearers, but we'll also be doers. And the constant temptation that crowds in our hearts and in our lives, God, to be so focused on other things in a moment like this. God, give us a supernatural, holy focus that's not of ourselves, God. We, do, we so desperately need it. God, fix us, mind and heart, on truth. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. When we were walking through the, or when we started rather, walking through the, the chapter of Acts, Acts 16, I asked you a question. I don't remember, or excuse me, I don't know if you remember the question that I asked you. The question that I asked you was, who is your... You may remember, not your neighbor, who's your Lydia? Do you remember that? Been a minute since we talked about that, so no worries. 
a lot of water under the bridge. And if you're like me, I can't hardly remember what I did yesterday. But we do need to remember. It's a favorite word of scripture, by the way. I don't know if you've ever noticed how many times we're called to remember. But we need to remember. And I want you to think about that again with fresh ears. Who's your Lydia? And I want to add to that based on our text. I want you to think about not only who is your Lydia, those divinely orchestrated, God-ordained moments where God unites your life with someone else's life so that you can share the gospel with them and you walk away from that going, wow, that was a God thing, right? Like those are the Lydia's that we need. But I'm thankful, I don't know about you, I'm a little rough around the edges. I'm thankful that God doesn't just save refined folks like Lydia. But Jason, he saves roughnecks like us. And this Philippian jailer fits the bill. He fits the mold. So not only do I want you to ask yourself, who is your Lydia? Those people that are around you that God's divinely orchestrating events for you to meet. It's like they fall right in your lap. Pastor Jim, I want us to ask ourselves this morning, who's your Philippian jailer? Who's that lady or who's that woman or... Who, who's that man or that boy or that girl or that teenager that's around you that's a little rough around the edges and you may rather not be around them than to be around them. But let us remember both Lydia and the Philippian jailer needed Jesus and God saved both. I want you to think about that the same way that God orchestrated events to get Paul to Lydia. He's the same missionary God that orchestrated events. To get Paul to the jailer. Now we do have to admit. We'll see it in just a minute. It was unconventional. And it was different. And it was definitely out of the box. But God got the gospel. In the way that only God could do. To the heart that needed it. At the very moment that he needed it. And you'll see what I'm talking about. In just a minute. My aim this morning. Very simply. It's so simple. Is to remind us all that we have a missionary God. And that the hero of this story that we're about to read is not Silas. The hero of this story is not Luke. The hero of this story is not even the Apostle Paul. As amazing as Paul is and, and the way that God uses Paul in so many amazing ways. The hero of the story is not even Paul. It's not even the jailer and it's not even the girl that was demon possessed. The hero of the story is God. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So let me ask you again. So it's fresh in your mind. Who's your Philippian jailer? Look with me at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl. Who had a spirit of divination. And brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out. These men are servants of the most high God. Who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul. Having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that her hope of gain was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. We'll pause there for just a minute and unpack that section. There's an important thing that we need to remember that I haven't said yet, but we desperately need to remember it so we understand the context of this passage. And it's the Macedonian vision. Do you remember that part as well in the story? Not only who is your Lydia and how Lydia came to faith in Christ, but how Paul even ended up in Macedonia to begin with. If you remember, Paul wanted to go to Bithynia and Paul wanted to go to Asia, but the spirit of God prevented him from going in both directions. And he has this Macedonian vision and this man from Macedonia says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And we talked about how this was God reaching the unreached, that we have a missionary God that takes the gospel to where it had never been preached before. And the gospel goes to Europe for the very first time. And when it goes to Europe, that's when Paul meets Lydia. And so I want you to understand that the call, this Macedonian call, didn't just stop with Lydia, but it extends its way also to her family and her household. and extends its way also to the Philippian jailer and to his household as well. We, we have to remember that context. God had a plan. God had a purpose. God sent this missionary team on a rescue mission to rescue sinners from their sin by preaching the gospel to them. So after they meet Lydia and Lydia comes to faith in Christ, we find our way to verse 16. Look back at verse 16 again. Paul, like a good fisherman, goes back to the place where he last caught a fish. Not literally, figuratively. Any good fisherman knows that you're going to keep hitting that bed until their fish don't bite no more. Isn't that right, Jim? That's what he does. He met Lydia the last time at this place of prayer on the riverbank where these ladies were gathered up praying. He's like, man, it worked the last time, Jason. I'm going to go right back there and throw, throw the line back in and see what I can catch again. This time, notice what happens. God's working. God's plan is unfolding. The outcome is different. They go to this place of prayer and they meet a slave girl. And this is so sad and so tragic and it's so easy to read over verse 16 because we want to get to the Philippian jailer. But we do need to understand every life matters. Every soul matters. Every person matters. This girl was in bondage to the evilness and the darkness of Satan the exact same way the Philippian jailer was. It just looked different for her. Notice what the text says about her. She had a spirit of what? Divination. Now, this is an interesting place in the text because Luke uses this word only one time in the Greek and he's drawing off of Greek mythology here. 
Because really in the Greek mind and in the Greek thought and because of Greek mythology, they believe that this girl that can foretell the future was not necessarily possessed by the devil, but they thought that she was possessed or the spirit of Python was speaking through her. And all of that had to do with Greek mythology. That's what they literally thought. They talk about a lie, talk about false gods, talk about the power of a lie, leading her into bondage, leading them into bondage. Now we know greater than Greek mythology, what was behind this was was Satan. So this is a very dark, dark moment in the text and in her life. But notice how she's being used. And I chose that word used on purpose. Look at the text. She's got this demonic spirit and she's owned. She's a slave girl. And what are her owners doing? Do they care for her? Do they love her? Do they want to see what's best for her? Do they want to see her grow and flourish? Absolutely not. They're using her for gain. Look at the text. It says they, she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Now, one of the other things that you need to understand is not only is she demon possessed, and not only is Greek mythology kind of shaping the Roman understanding of what's going on in this moment, and not only is she being used by the by her owners to bring them financial gain and profit, but this is a clue, like a window into not only the darkness of the moment in her life, but the darkness of the Roman world. I go back to Deuteronomy 18. I want to show you something. Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we know Moses repeats the law to get the people ready for the promised land. And I want you to look with me at verse 9. Because this is a description of paganism. This is a description of the land. And this lets us know that God doesn't like when these types of things are taking place. Look at verse 9. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Huh. Well, what are those abominable practices? Look at the text. Verse 10. They shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. That's dark. Anyone who practices what? Hmm. Or tells fortunes. Or interprets omens. Or a sorcerer. Or a charmer. Or a medium. Or a necromancer. Or anyone who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Now go back to Acts 16. What does all of that let us know? What it lets us know is this is a very dark nation. This is a very dark culture. This is a very dark city. We could say it differently. It's a hopeless place. It's a place where the light of the gospel needs to shine. And now you can see why God would bring Paul and his team there to shine and bring the gospel into a very dark situation 
This was a pagan nation, not only because of the divination, but because of Greek mythology, because they worshiped the Roman emperor and because of all those other pagan practices. Tons of immorality we could talk about as well. Look at verse 17. She follows Paul around. She cries out before them or with them. She follows them around and says, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, you'd have to love what Paul does here after she does this many days in verse 18. He gets annoyed, Mr. Bill. He turns and he says to says to the spirit, you got to love how he does this. He says, I command you not in the name of Paul, not in the name of Silas, not in the name of any other human, but I command you in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Christ. Come out. And at that very moment. It comes out. It's interesting that this demon proclaims truth about God. Stephen, you'll get there eventually when you get to chapter two in James and verse 19. But James tells us that even the demons believe and they tremble. It's not that the demons don't know who God is. They do. In fact, you can see it all throughout the Gospels. Every single time Christ rolls up into the scene and there's a demonic activity, they always, almost always say, have you come to what? Destroy us? They know. And we could probably say they know better than we do. Nevertheless, we see that in the text. They know who Jesus is. They know what Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy are doing and Paul then casts out this demon now I want you to think about this girl she's been used for gain no one loves her nor cares about her but in God's providence Jim she's delivered like it's so easy to read over that isn't it think about that this girl's whole existence was was to this point had been she'd been demon possessed, used for financial gain, and then Paul, even if his motives were because he was annoyed, God uses that too. And delivers her from this demonic activity, this demonic possession. Pretty awesome. And then look at the sadness of it all in verse 19. This is the world, this is the way the world treats people. They will use you, abuse you, and throw you away when. When they're done with you, look at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they didn't care about her. That's when they seized Paul. That's when they seized Silas and they carried them off to the rulers. And a, a Roman colony like Philippi, you had two magistrates that ruled. And they take them before these They take these brothers before these magistrates. And then they make all these accusations. They're Jews that are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful. Hmm. Sounds almost like what happened to Christ. Now, when you keep going, that's not only what happened. That's not only what's similar to what happened to Christ. But when we look at the text, we see other things that were similar. Look at verse 23. These magistrates, they have these brothers beaten. They inflict many blows. This would have been upon their back. That's why it says they stripped them. And then they ordered the jailer to put them into, into prison. This is the circumstance that God uses to get Paul and Silas to prison to meet the Philippian jailer. 
Don't sleep on that. And we're wrapping our minds around the text. Like these are the circumstances that God uses. He calls his, his, his men, he calls this team into Europe. He takes them to a riverbank to meet Lydia. No real persecution. No real hardship. No real adversity. But the God of comfort is also the God of affliction. He uses both in our lives and he uses this affliction to get Paul and Silas where he wants them so that they can share the gospel with the Philippian jailer. So he and his household come to faith in Christ. My brothers and my sisters, I know we talk about this a lot, but we have to be okay with the hard times. And Paul and Silas, how they responded at this moment would mean everything to the Philippian jailer's conversion. If they respond negatively, if they get in their feelings, if they pout, if they quit, if they whine, if they complain, if they moan, if they grumble, it would have been like cancer in the jail. It would have been like cancer to the Philippian jailer. He didn't care anyway. He was in a pagan nation surrounded by pagan beliefs and idolatry idolatrous, all kinds of stuff. He didn't care. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? In those moments where God is working in your life, in my life, in an unconventional way, our response is crucial. It's critical. It is because God in His kindness and His grace is orchestrating all things according to His unfolding plan of redemption. There's a reason, Jim, why you're going to the doctor on January the 2nd. There's a reason why everything happened with Evan. There's a reason why Lori Williams lost her husband. There's a reason why both Mandy and Eric lost both dads in the same year. There's a reason for your adversity. There's a reason for your hardship. God uses it redemptively to advance the kingdom. That's the problem we have, though, isn't it? Because it's hard. We can't. We know the truth of what I'm saying, but there's the human element as well. Melvin, do you really think Paul and Silas were like, man, that felt good. That beating felt great. Bring it on. One of the things that you need to understand about this moment is in Jewish law, you can only beat somebody up to 39 times. But in Roman law, this is not Jewish law. In Roman law, they could beat these brothers as much as they wanted. And we don't know how much they beat them, but what we do know is it would have been difficult. I couldn't help but think of the, the hymn by William Cowper. We've talked about this before, but he said, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonder to perform. He plants his footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. That's what God is doing in this moment. He's rescued this girl from demon possession. Think about that. Now he's about to rescue the Philippian jailer from the penalty and power of sin. And not only him, but his house. In an unconventional way. Israel, I could not help but think about this. Why does it surprise us? God is an unconventional God. Find anywhere in scripture where God does something amazing and it makes sense humanly. 
Very rarely do you find it. The walls of Jericho. Did that make sense? No. Did it work? Perfectly. Who was saved? Rahab. Gideon. Did that make sense? No. Who was saved? The Israelites. Who got glory? God. I could go on and on and on and on and story after story after story. You already know what I'm talking about. We know this to be true. But when it happens to us, that's when the wheels fall off. And that's when we're tempted to say, oh, God, how have you changed? Oh, God, what are you doing? He hasn't changed. He's the same. He works in an unconventional way. And I don't know about you, but when we get out on the other side, it always makes more sense. And I'm thankful that God works in an unconventional way. Now, this is unconventional. A demon-possessed girl calling out Paul and Silas, and God drives them out, but like an infomercial. Wait, there's more. Look at the text. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing, singing hymns to God, and the, the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, these are the key verses of the text. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them in the same hour of the night and washed all their wounds. And he was baptized at once in all his family, he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. My brothers and my sisters, God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the seas and he rides upon the storms. God is always working out his plan, always working out the plan of redemption. And in this moment, I've already mentioned it, how Paul and Silas responded would be crucial. Verse 25, how did they respond? Look at the text. What were they doing? They were praying and they were singing hymns to God. I've told you this before. I'm not there yet. That's, that's definitely, if I'm being honest, like that's not my first response. My, my first response is to do some of the other things that I mentioned. Like that's what I'm going to be tempted to default to. But man, these brothers set a good example for us. Do they not? They have just been beaten unjustly. They were Roman citizens. Didn't even get a fair trial. Didn't even get a fair hearing. And here they are, not even worried about that, not even worried about their rights. <laughs> Americans need to hear that, amen? Not even worried about our rights. They're just worried about King Jesus. They're praying and singing hymns to God in the midst of adversity. And who's listening? 
the prisoners. And I thought about that. How powerful it is when you're going through dark moments of the soul to listen to good music. Christ-centered, God-exalting music. It meets you where you're at like nothing else does. What kind of singing would they have been doing? Well, they would have been singing the Bible. They would have been singing the book of Psalms. That's what they would have been singing. The very thing that we did this morning. That's what they would have been singing. And as they're singing, think about the content of the inspired word of God. Do you understand what we sing? God can use that to save a soul just like he can use me when I'm preaching. It certainly impacted the prisoners. It certainly impacted the jailer. It matters what we sing. The content of what we sing matters and the content of what we pray matters as well. They would have been praying the gospel, Jim. They, I mean, uh, Bill, they would, have been, they would have been praying the gospel. They would have been praying to God so that everyone could hear the good news of Christ in that way and in that fashion. Maybe it would have looked something like this, Melvin. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to be beaten by you. We recognize what you said in the Sermon on the Mount is blessed are those who are persecuted. And even though this hurts and even though we're struggling and even though we don't understand why, Lord, we know that there's a reason. And we trust you for that. God, we pray that you use us right here in this jail to save somebody that needs to hear the gospel. We recognize that if the circumstances hadn't unfolded the way that they had, we would not be here. We would be down by a riverbank. But we're not down by a riverbank. We're in jail. And we're in jail for you, Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you use us today. We pray that you use us tonight. Even in the middle of the night, Lord, we pray that you use us and we want to sing to you and proclaim the greatness of your name. It may have looked like that or it may look like something different. I don't know. But what I do know is the prisoners were listening. And not only that, this whole unconventional thing becomes even more unconventional. Look at verse 26. There's an earthquake that happens. The prison doors open, the bonds of the, the, the shackles fall off of these prisoners. Verse 27, the jailer wakes up. Now I want you to see how he's operating according to his feelings. He, he opens, he sees the prison doors are open rather, and he draws out his what? And what was he about to do? R.C. Sproul said this about that. It's really interesting. He said that for a Roman jailer, it was a very dishonorable thing to lose any prisoners. But yet it would have been a very heroic act for him to fall on his sword. Now think about that. In the Roman world filled with mythology, filled with false ideologies, filled with many lies, it was an actual, it was actually an honorable thing to kill yourself. Bill couldn't help but think of John 10, 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. This is the power of a lie. This was not an honorable thing to kill himself. It was not a heroic thing to take his own life. In fact, what he would have done if he had done that is he would have lost the opportunity to hear the what? Gospel. Who's at work behind the scenes in this story? Have you caught it? 
There's a demon-possessed girl. There's a culture filled with lies. There's people that aren't valued and thrown away like trash. Have you caught who's behind the attack on this story? And now, and now who, is, who is behind trying to get this jailer to take his own life? The thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. It may have been honorable in the Roman culture, but it was not honorable before our God. In fact, if you looked at the Greek, it would let us know, and we don't have time to go there, but it was actually evil. That's what the Greek says. It would have been an evil thing for him to do that, to do this. Now, this is interesting. Look at the text. He was about to kill himself. Now, what's the next word there? Supposing. Okay. Are y'all with me? This man, do you feel the tension in this moment? This man's about to fall on his sword. And he doesn't even have all the facts. It means to assume or to presume something without certainty. It's one thing for me to presume my football team's going to win, which they never do. It's another thing to presume with my life. This man was about to take his own life and he didn't even have all the facts of the situation. The thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. This is the power of a lie. You need to just take your own life because you'll be a hero if you do, because you've messed up so bad that culture won't accept you anymore. Huh. That's a lie. That's a lie. What does God say? You're an image bearer and you have worth, value, and dignity. And every life matters. It's a cosmic battle going on right here in this story. It's interesting. He's going to take his own life, but he doesn't even have all the facts. He's driven by his emotions. He's driven by his feelings. He's driven by his identity. He's driven by his worth in the world. He's driven by what the Roman culture says about him. He's driven by what others think about him. He is totally in bondage and enslaved to the world. Do you know what's rising in America right now? Rapidly among teenagers and adults. The suicide rate. And I have to go here because the text allows me and I need to. Because probably in a room this large, somebody, somebody may have thought something similar. Kind of like the jailer, though the circumstances are different. You don't have all the facts, but when you're struggling like him and your whole world and your whole identity, and your whole perception of reality is not biblical, you don't think straight. And when you don't think straight, you do dumb things. And one of the things that you do or you could do that would be tragic would be to think that somehow this world is better off without you or that somehow you're so far gone or so far without hope that you're just trash and that nobody loves you and nobody cares for you and you have no hope in this world. I'm telling you, do you understand what God did? Do you see what God did? He sent these brothers way across the, the, the sea, way back when, all the way in this Macedonian vision. Come over and come over to help this guy. He's not in a good place. He's going to hurt or harm himself. And, and I'm going to put you right in the middle of the crucible of this man's life. So that you can share the gospel with him. So he can be restored and redeemed and made new. This is beautiful. 
This is the gospel. This is our God. He saves Lydia's and he saves jailers. I was talking to Emilio about this yesterday. Some of us are like Lydia and it just takes a conversation. Some of us are like the jailer and it takes an earthquake. It does. We're so wrapped up in ourselves. We're so wrapped up in our world. We're so wrapped up in our rebellion. We're so wrapped up in our whatever. And sometimes it takes an earthquake for God to shake the very foundations of our soul and say, I'm here and I love you and I want to save you. There's hope in this world. You don't have to harm yourself. You don't have to take your own life or many other things that go through our heads. Is it just me or am I the only one that thinks things that are crazy sometimes? This is why the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in Philippians 4, it says that think upon these things, whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is of good reputation, etc. What an amazing story where this guy is at the literally, y'all, he is at the end of his rope and he really believes that what's best for him in this moment is to end his own life and he'll be a hero. And God in his grace says, no, I love you. Listen to these guys. Look at what Paul does. Verse 28. Paul cries with a loud voice, don't harm yourself. Everybody's here. Think the prisoners weren't listening? They were listening. And the jailer, now what does he do? Verse 29. This is what he should have done to begin with. Now what does he do? What does he do? Look at the text. Then he calls for the lights and then he rushes in. And then he falls down before Paul and Silas. And then in verse 30, he asks a very important question. The same thing that Lydia would have asked. It might have looked different. What does he ask? What must I do to be saved? I sat in the ordination council not too long ago and the brother that was up for ordination I just asked one question and what I asked was if someone comes to you and asks you what must I do to be saved what would you say I wonder this morning if you know how to answer that question if someone came up to you we've been talking about it right who's your Lydia We've been talking about it, right? Who's your Philippian jailer? Who's that guy that's rough around the edges that needs Jesus just like Lydia did? We can't pick and choose. God saves both. Praise God. So if somebody actually came up to you and asked you, what must I do to be saved? Could you even answer that question? If not, maybe you need to answer that for yourself this morning. Lord, I need you to save me. If you're already a Christian, then you need to be thinking about the fact that God saves us and sends us to people like the jailers so that we can share the gospel with them. And, and I say this with love, but you need to be able to tell someone how to come to faith in Christ. Notice what they say. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It's interesting what he asks. What do I need to be saved? What, well, what do I need to do like to be saved from the wrath of God? He was listening to their singing. He was listening to their praying. He knew what they stood for. He 
knew why they were there. Verse 31, believe and trust in who? In Jesus. He's the Lord. And you'll be rescued from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Not only you, but your household. In other words, this message isn't just for you. This message is also for your family. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the gospel never really just stops with us, does it? It's meant to keep going. And one of the ways in Acts, I haven't talked about this much, but we need to this morning. One of the things that we see in Acts that's amazing is how much God saves households. It's over and over and over again. So if you're here this morning and you're discouraged about your family, if you're here this morning and you're discouraged about lost family members, God's arm's not too short that it can't save. But we have to be asking, who's our Lydia? And we have to be asking, who's our Philippian jailer? And we have to be like Paul and ready to share. And we have to know the content of the gospel in order to share. We have to have our eyes looking at the harvest. Instead of other things. Verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. What did they do? They shared the gospel. They shared the gospel. Two things and I'm going to close. Last week at Fort Drum Community Church, there was a family that showed up. Two brothers. Um. With their wives and a mother-in-law. So it was a family. Their circumstance for getting there was nothing like the Philippian jailers or nothing like Paul. But it was still a divinely orchestrated moment. Months and months and months ago, they had broke down on the side of the road. And they needed some gas. And a pastor, I don't know who it was, stopped. Because he had been hauling gas for some reason. Who knows? It was a God thing. And he fills their tank up. And he asks them, hey, why don't you come to church? And they say, okay, we'll come. And they were making good on that promise last Sunday morning at Fort Drum Community Church. You say, well, well, what does that have to do with anything? There were two lost brothers that heard the gospel because of a divinely orchestrated moment in time. Because somebody was ready and willing to help. And ready and willing to invite and ready and willing to share. Maybe they'll come back this morning. Maybe they'll hear the gospel again. Who's your Lydia? Who's your Philippian jailer? Let me close with this. Back to Cooper's hymn. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break. And blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. My brothers and my sisters, we can trust the Lord in our circumstances and the events of our life because he's bringing hope to the hopeless.
through our lives. Let's pray together. Father, there's so much in this story that we didn't even get to. So much there. But I thank you for how you save people. God, you delivered a little girl that had been tormented by a demonic spirit and being used by people and thrown away like trash. You valued her and delivered her from that oppression. And I say thank you for that. And then God, in this, this unbelievable unfolding of events, Lord, in your grace, like a laser beam, you reach down and you save this Philippian jailer and his household. Father, I pray for the one that's here this morning or listening online that needs to respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. God, you have orchestrated events for them to hear the truth about who Jesus is and how you save people from their sins. God, I pray that you do that this morning. God, as we sing, may we sing with joy for what you saved many of us from, God, those of us that are in the faith. And may we walk in truth today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we worship the Lord through a closing song. song it's it's uh new that we want to teach you it's called god made low i suggest 